If you would please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. The book of Daniel chapter 2. Last week we began studying the book of Daniel. And we saw that the book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six contain stories that usually we hear in Sunday school. We consider them sort of the kiddie stories. And then the second uh, half of the book, the last six chapters, uh, have prophecies that have stumped scholars and theologians over the centuries. Um, so that seems to be the more serious stuff and not, not like the first part. The reality is the book of Daniel is a single book. It has a unity. And if we are going to understand the second half of the book, we need to understand the first half of the book. The Jewish world had been turned upside down. Babylon had conquered Jerusalem and in a few years would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. How are God's people supposed to survive in such an upside down world? Well, they had to develop a new thinking, if you wish. This is what the book of Daniel is about. They're no longer in the promised land, in the holy land. They are a small minority in an environment that is sometimes hostile, sometimes friendly, but is certainly alien to their culture and their faith. The question is, how do they fit in without being swallowed up? Would God keep his promises? How long would it take for it to be fulfilled with them being in Babylon? Should they remain faithful to the call of God? Is it worthwhile hanging on to the traditions of the fathers? Could they dare to expect that God would deliver them as he had delivered Israel out of Egypt? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the ruler of Babylon, was in the process of creating an empire. And he needed to have individuals that he could sort of delegate authority to, to rule the different aspects of the empire. And who better to do this than people from these different places? So if you want someone to govern uh, in Judah, in Judea, then it should probably be someone who is Jewish, someone who is a Jew. And so as he has brought exiles into the capital city, he begins to pick out the best and the brightest. Young men, we're told in chapter 1, without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. They were to receive three years of training in the language of the Babylonians and the literature of the Babylonians, which meant that they would understand or come to know statecraft, the culture, and Babylonian thinking. Daniel is a part of the group of exiles taken from Jerusalem, from Judah to Babylon, and now is brought into this program. It seems that there are at least two options for people who are taken into captivity. To either withdraw from mainstream society and live in sort of a ghetto existence, or to blend in with mainstream society. These, I think, are the two options for any minority, and not simply a religious uh, context, but uh, even an ethnic minority, either to withdraw or to blend in. So I mentioned last week, uh, Dick Kies in his book, Chameleon Christianity, says that this is the twofold temptation of a dissonant minority, those who don't quite fit in. There are two temptations. One is to tribalize, and that's withdraw into a ghetto. The other is to reach a point of accommodation and simply go along with what's happening. The first eliminates contact. 
we isolate ourselves from the world. The second removes conflict by simply compromising and doing whatever it is that the world does. But as Dick points out in his book, both of these are forms of worldliness. And Jesus speaks against both in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that we are not to put our light under a bushel or under a basket. That's to isolate yourself. And he says we are also not to lose our saltiness, our uniqueness. That is to compromise and to blend in with the rest of society. There has to be a third option for the people of God. We should not isolate, we should not compromise. What is the third option? This is what we find in the book of Daniel. The men who are mentioned in chapter 1 are, three, are four men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Back home they were either part of a royal family, the royal family or a noble family. And now they are going to be part of an elite group in Babylon. What are they to do? As I said last week, they may not have had a choice. They are captives after all. But one might argue that it seems, at least in chapter 1, that these men have sold out. Not only are they now in the king's training program to work in his service, but now they have Babylonian names. Daniel, his name is now becomes Belteshazzar, but Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah is renamed Shadrach, but Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael becomes Meshach, Mishael means who is like God, and Azariah becomes Abednego, but Azariah means God has helped. With a new name, I think is implied new allegiance. They now belong to the Babylonian service, if you wish. Uh, they are now mainstream. Like Esther, whose Jewish name was Hadassah, but her uh, Persian name, Esther, like Ishtar, uh, is a pagan name. The four men have Jewish names that extol the glory of God, the God of Israel. And now they are given names that, by implication, come from various gods of Babylon. So they've gone from being, it seems, the people of God, to being the people of false gods. It seems that they've sold out. But as we saw last week, this is not the case. Daniel and the other exiles were living faithfully. They were fitting in, but they were not compromising. As I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, Daniel has it over us in that he had wisdom, but there's something else, something that we can have, and that is community. Daniel did not stand alone, but he had his friends, those who were like him. This is key as we go through the entire book of Daniel. One more thing, and then we'll get into chapter 2. What we find are four men, and there may have been more, I'm inclined to believe that there were more, who accepted the privileges that were given to them by Nebuchadnezzar's program. They were willing to cooperate. They said yes to the challenges and invitations of Babylonian life. But they also said no. They were willing to serve, but not if it meant sacrificing their own national identity as the people of God. And that's really important, and we'll see it particularly when we come to chapter 3. Now we're coming to chapter 2. Look at the first verse, if you would. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. On the face of it, this is a shocking statement, a shocking sentence. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. He has enormous power and wealth. His word is never questioned. 
His armies have defeated all their enemies, yet night after night he is having dreams. And by the way, notice that is plural. He didn't have a dream, he's having dreams. Okay? His mind is troubled and he cannot sleep. Not remembering his dreams, as we will see, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar is haunted by a feeling that his personal security and that of his empire are being threatened by something that he does not understand, something that is beyond his control. And he becomes increasingly insecure. I think that's why he can't sleep. And as his uneasiness grows, so does his sense of frustration and his anger. Look, if you would, at verse number two. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. It must be maddening that the best and the brightest that money can buy can't do what you want. They can't provide the answers that you want. What we hear are threats and rewards. If you don't tell me what my dream was, then I'm going to cut you to pieces. And your houses turn into piles of rubble. On the other hand, if you tell me what my dream was, then I will reward you with gifts and great honor. They can't tell him what they don't know. Uh, now, all things being equal, if somebody tells you, yeah, I had a dream, you could sort of fumble your way through or make something up. But if somebody says, listen, I, didn't, I, I had a dream, I can't remember what it was, tell me what my dream was. Well, that's, I can't do that. No one can do that. Verse 7, once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. Here is something that Nebuchadnezzar, for all his power and influence, cannot master. Here is something that belonged, something that he could not control by his beck and call. He couldn't snap his fingers and there it would be. And I think this increased his sense of frustration and anger almost to a fevered pitch. He becomes paranoid. Look at verse number nine. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. See, you've conspired. There's a, it's a conspiracy. You're all against me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. This is what his insecurity has led him to. Kill them all. Kill them all. Now, as we begin here in chapter 2, we need to recognize that what Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing is not unique 
Reinhold Niebuhr in 1944, this is sort of the perfect time to write something like this, is that the, rights, or that the lust for power is prompted by a darkly conscious realization of the insecurity of his existence. Man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure. And so he grasps after position, fame, wealth, and power. But the more he attains and the higher he climbs, the more basically insecure he feels his position, for the more terribly his fall could be. Therefore, the more he attains, the more desperately and anxiously he is driven to strive to attain. Nebuchadnezzar is at the top of the heap. He is the most powerful man in the world. And yet this does not make him secure. This makes him insecure. His quest for power has brought with it great insecurity. I would argue that this is not simply the case for individuals, but for groups as well. Groups who become more and more irrational, oppressive. They want power. They want power. And when they get power, they want even more. And I think this is because there's a fearful sense of weakness. Somehow, deep down, they know that, in fact, they, they're insecure. They, they can't hold on to what it is that they want. Nebuchadnezzar is a wonderful, if that's the right word, example of this deep, hidden, deeply hidden insecurity that drives a person or a group to acquire, 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 ever unsatisfied acquisitiveness, the pursuit of pleasure, irrational anger, and behavior toward friends and family that is strange and ominous. And the answer of such irrationality? Kill them all. Kill them all. I think one only has to look at the political situation in our country for the last couple of years, and you just, there's this this, this burning irrationality, this is what we find in Nebuchadnezzar. So verse number 13, so the decree went out or was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. After all, Daniel and his friends are part of this group. They don't get to be exempted because they're Jewish. They are to be put to death as well. Behind this whole insecurity are the que- are ultimate questions. If somebody will listen and address them, this is what's going on. What is the purpose of my life? Nebuchadnezzar, he's the top of the heap. What is the purpose of his existence? Where is it going? Where will it end? Why is it when I'm at the highest point in my life that this strange, disturbing thought comes that what I have may in fact end up in tragedy? Why do I have a sense that everything is vain and vanity? It is worth noting, and I think it's significant, that at this crisis point in his life, Nebuchadnezzar not only wants to know the interpretation of his dreams, he wants to know what the dreams are themselves. And I think, if you want to get psychological about this, may come from his subconscious which deals with the issues that are so troubling that somebody else, somebody outside the person, must in fact reveal it to him. In the original Blade Runner movie, I don't know if you're familiar with it, 
But in the closing moments, uh, Rick Deckard, who is the man seeking out replicants, thinks to himself of Roy Batty, the replicant that he finally captured, so to speak. All he wanted was the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do is sit there and watch him die. And right before he dies, there's a sequence there where Roy says to him, quite an experience to live in fear. That's what it means to be a slave. And that's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He is the master of all, and yet he is a slave to his fear. Now Daniel appears on the scene in verses 14 to 23. But as we go through the rest of the story, I would have you consider this, that in chapter 1, Daniel said, no, I will not eat the king's meat. Here in chapter 2, we hear Daniel and his friends saying, yes, they will accept their involvement in this serious situation and they will respond and answer this desperate call for help. They will fit in, but they will not compromise. We need to think about it, not only what is happening for Daniel, but in our lives. Sometimes I think we are too quick uh, and too neat to prescribe or impose a kind of behavior. This is how Christians are supposed to act. And we expect that others will follow along with us. And if they don't, then, then they're out. They're, they're not part of our group. Words like separation and involvement become simple and exclusive principles of conduct. Principles are important. We saw that in chapter 1. But I think we forget that we have been given a counselor, one who can give us guidance and wisdom. We have been given an example that we should follow, one who was without sin and yet associated with sinners. And we have been given each other, brothers and sisters, with whom we can share our burdens, our situations, and to whom we can look for wisdom. I don't have it in my notes, but it's been in my head all week, and I, I want to say this. Let's just say at the outset, we're going to get things wrong. Okay, We're not going to be perfect. There are going to be times when we isolate, when we should in fact engage. And there are times when we compromise, when in fact we should not. Okay. So let's just get that out there. And then with that in mind, recognize that by God's grace, we are to be his people and we are to be obedient, fitting in, but not compromising. What does Daniel do? Beginning verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke with him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What does Daniel do? He does what every child of God should do. He turns to his fellow believers and urges them to pray, to plead to the God of heaven. They turn to God in prayer. Now somebody might say, well, this seems kind of self-serving. You're praying that you won't die. Well, what do you want him to do? You don't just say, well, okay, I guess that's it. We're going to die. Um, do you want him to pray to another God, to other gods? 
Do you want him to try to think his way out of this situation? No, they do exactly what they should. I'm reminded, by the way, in the series we did on the Psalms and prayer, uh, Isaac Singer said, I only pray when I am in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. This is what we find in the people of God. And the Lord reveals to Daniel in a vision this mystery, verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. This is the proper response. One, I think oftentimes that we fail to give or to do, um, sometimes because we're just overjoyed that God has answered our prayer and we forget that we ask him for it. Um, the other, t- other times it's just because we got what we wanted and so we're, we're happy and so we just go on our way. No, they pray to God and God answers their prayer and he praises God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Here we have the key, in my opinion, not only to the book of Daniel, but also to the third option. Not isolation, not compromise, but faithful obedience, recognizing that God is in control. As I mentioned last week, this is brought up several times in verse number two, that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And in verse number nine, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Then I mentioned last week in Jeremiah chapter 29, I believe it is, where Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and God says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to those I carried into exile. Far too often we only look at what we can see and we forget that God in fact is in control of what is going on. In a foreign pagan land, how can they fit in without being swallowed up? in part to recognize that God is in control, that God will faithfully fulfill his part of the covenant that he made to Abraham and renewed with Isaac and Jacob and then at Sinai. As Daniel put it, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Spoiler alert, this is what the dreams are all about. This is what the book of Daniel is all about. So now Daniel and the king, beginning in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. 
As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the reveal of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may, under, may know the interpretation, that you may understand what went through your mind. Daniel wants to make it clear at the beginning, he is not the source of this knowledge. He is not the source of the explanation of the mystery. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, and he has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what is coming down the road, what is going to happen. And, and why did God do this, by the way? Well, if you look at it, it's while Nebuchadnezzar was on his bed wondering what was going to happen and wondering what this was, where this was all headed, wondering what the future held. And God reveals to him in these dreams that are troubling, so much so that he becomes paranoid, but God reveals to him. So now Daniel explains the dreams. Well, he, he tells him what the dream is and then the explanation. One more thing before we get into this. We should not assume that this is merely Nebuchadnezzar's subconscious troubling him and that God is giving him insight into the temporary nature of power. No, I think that we should see the dreams of this insecure king as the God of Israel's way of revealing the future of humanity to him and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. We will see this as we go along. Daniel cannot know this on his own. God must reveal it to him. He knows of the promises God made to Abraham and to Israel. His friends prayed to the God of Israel that God would give them understanding. And that's precisely what happened. Look at verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at that same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so there will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. 
but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar is probably familiar with the tradition that was around at that time, that human history would consist of four great ages, and that in each age there would be a great empire. But they would, it would sort of be a downward spiral. Each one would be less happy and less resilient as the previous one. So Nebuchadnezzar is, in fact, the head of gold. This is, he's the top, and everything will go downhill from then. Um, what about the others? Daniel doesn't explain what, what they are. What he points out is that the four empires will run their course before the kingdom of God finally enters the world. Just a side note, there have been many meanings and interpretations given to this dream about this image. And I think we should wait till we get to chapter 7 for more information on this in the second half. But I think what we should get from this is what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of God is coming and will triumph. As Daniel puts it, the king of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The key part of the stream is not the head of gold, not the silver, the bronze, the iron, the iron with the clay, which books have been written about and charts made and all this kind of stuff. That's not the point of the story. It is the rock. In verse number 34, a rock that was cut out, but not by human hands. Verse 45, the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. And what does the rock represent? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who breaks into history, who alters history, has changed our history, and who will bring devastating judgment on all that stands in its path. The kingdom of God is breaking into human history with irresistible and ever-growing power. A rock will suddenly become a mountain that covers the whole earth. This was spoken of by Isaiah. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is also the message we hear from John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message. And this is the Christ that we are to proclaim. In a world filled with uneasy dreams, crumbling empires, whether political or financial, to those who want power more than anything, to those who live in fear, but it is expressed in great anger, to those who grasp after position, fame, wealth, and power, to those who become more and more irrational and oppressive, this is the gospel. The kingdom of God has, is at hand. More on this in a minute. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. 
The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, and Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Three responses. The first is worship, which he doesn't get quite right because he offers it to Daniel, but he recognizes that God is, in fact, the source. He is the one who reveals all mysteries. One could argue easily that Nebuchadnezzar was happy to finally learn what his dreams were and what they meant, that his worship was deeply flawed, and I would agree. But the fact is his first thought is worship, and I don't see that in today's world. In modern people, worship is not the first thing that comes to mind. But it is for Nebuchadnezzar. Then there is reward. Nebuchadnezzar rewards Daniel. And then the third thing is an extended reward. He rewards his friends as well. On the advice of Daniel, on the recommendation, um, he appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators over the province of Babylon. See, Daniel recognized that he did not stand alone. He prayed with his friends. They prayed for him, and God revealed the answer. I said last week that the book of Daniel is not written to those who are suffering persecution. There is one school of thought that argues that it was written during the time of the Maccabees, and we can talk about it afterwards, but it's just not feasible. It's just, no, that's not what happened. It's written during a time in which the Jews are in exile, but they're living the good life. Their their lives are going well. They are a tiny minority in this huge empire. And the question is, will they remain faithful to the call of God? In many ways, I would say that their situation is similar to ours. As we live in a post-Christian world, we become an ever-shrinking minority, but we're not suffering persecution we are experiencing and enjoying, if you wish, the good life. Now come the temptations. Should we isolate ourselves or should we compromise? There is, in fact, a third way. And it is to recognize that the kingdom of God is breaking in and has been breaking into human history. Not only is God in control, I think Daniel and his friends knew that, in spite of things going upside down, But now they see that God's kingdom will in fact break into history and will spread and God will rule over the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, I think our brothers and sisters today who are suffering persecution, they understand far better than we do that the kingdom of God is going to be victorious, that it will break into human history. It has broken into human history, and one day God will rule. Not perhaps right now as they go through persecution, but that's okay. That's okay. On the other hand, we who live a comfortable life have lost sight of that. And I think it's due to accommodation or compromise. We've lost our saltiness, um, Some of us come out of traditions that advocated isolation and we've rejected that, but there's a third way 
And that is to be faithful to God, to fit in, to do what God has gifted us to do, and yet recognize that the kingdom of God is here. And slowly but surely, in ways that we cannot always perceive, it is spreading, and one day it will cover the earth. Daniel saw this. Nebuchadnezzar saw this. We need to see it as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution even today. And yet in some sense, it seems that they see more clearly the truth, the kingdom of God. We who live comfortable lives as an ever-shrinking minority faced by anger and fearfulness we have lost sight of the fact that your kingdom has broken into human history. There are times when it seems to be in retreat, at least that's how we perceive it, but the reality is that this rock cut from a mountain, not by human hands, will smash all things in its path and the kingdom of God will be triumphant. Perhaps we have become too comfortable What we have comes from you, and we are grateful. Perhaps we have become forgetful. Deep down, we have a sense that you are in control, particularly in times of crisis. But may your spirit remind us in a powerful way that Jesus has brought the kingdom And even as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. May we have a sense that in fact you are answering that prayer. Centuries ago, a pagan king who was troubled had dreams. And in his dreams, you revealed the truth, one that we have ignored. By your grace, may we take it to heart. And may we look to you in faith. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.